What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the bestseller experiment where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And today's episode, we have the triumphant return of one of our favourite guests. Favourite guests. But before we dive in, we need to tell you about something really exciting happening. If you have ever wondered what writing life coaching is all about, a lot of people say, Mark, what on earth is that? Come along to try a taster session next Monday. If you're listening to this, this episode comes out on Monday. So you better rush over to the website and register to have an hour Root Life and Coaching session with me. And it's a ton of fun, but also it's going to be a great opportunity for you to think about your mindset for 2022. Do come along to that and you can find out what it's all about. Mr. Stay, how are you, sir? I'm in a very good, very good place. I finished a pass on my latest novel. I'm going to let it rest. I'm going to read it again between Christmas and New Year, then send it off to my agent and editor. But, you know, for the moment, it's done. So uh, that's the third Witches of Woodville book, uh, Ghost of Ivy Barn. And uh, yeah, so I, I didn't know what to do with myself this afternoon. So I prepped for the podcast, obviously. Well, absolutely, as we always do, Mark. I mean, hours and hours and hours of prep <laughs> that we both do. But um, in terms of the pass, we talked about passes last week. Was this a nature pass? Was this a twist pass? <clears throat> this this was a feedback from beta readers pass. pass. Uh, one of which... <laughs> One of which is uh, a special guest on the podcast this week. Oh. So let, let's say, uh, yeah, uh, without whom it, uh, the book simply wouldn't be as good as 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 it is. So uh, yeah, let's let's talk about Mr. Ian W. Sainsbury, who we do we do indeed welcome Ian back to the podcast. Uh, he previously appeared on episode two three eight. I'll put on a, a link to that in the show notes because that is a very very entertaining or episode also featuring Queen McDonald. Um, Ian left uni. He ran away to join the circus. He's played piano on cruise ships. He was a stand-up comedian. He runs choirs. He's played Vegas. Take that, Glastonbury. Ooh. And if that wasn't enough, he's also the, the, he's also the Kindle Storyteller Award-winning author of The Picture on the Fridge. And before that, the author of the World Walker series, the Half Hero series, the Blurred Lands, Clockwork Sherlock. And now he's back with a brand new series, the Jimmy Blue series. And the path to publication of these books is one of reinvention that will inspire listeners Ian Sainsbury, welcome back to the podcast. How are you, sir? I'm all right. Thanks, Mark. It's lovely to, to be back, actually. And uh, just before you say anything else and, and blow more smoke up my nether regions, I just want to say <laughs> that The Ghost of Ivy Barn, as you just pointed out, I have read it and, and commented on it. It's my favourite so far of the Witches of Woodville series, and I am already oh, a big fan. You, it's a, it's you. a cracking story. Thank you very much. It really, it's absolutely Thank brilliant. You. So there we go. Let's get that in right at the top. Ian, I, say, I was going to say that intro, uh, you, we want to just compare if we could do back-to-back -back intros with the last time you were on the show. That is some intro, isn't it? <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, <laughs> doesn't it? I think anybody's sort of life in, put into a potted history with all the boring bits edited out sounds a bit groovy, doesn't it? Well, that's a good point. It's a really good point because we forget about all the major highlights. The daily grind really gets to us. But when you actually like squish it all together and you hear someone read that, it's like, actually... I've done all right. Oh, I'm doing okay. But what, what Mark did forget to mention, though, which was the biggest achievement you've ever had in your entire career, and any, any listeners of that infamous episode 238, which is going to be forever known your number, is that you were projected onto the side of a very large building, if I remember rightly. Yeah, that's true. I was going to say, obviously, my biggest achievement was being on the Bestseller Experiment podcast. But uh, okay, if you're going to have it your way, then no, I guess... Absolutely. Maybe we could maybe we could actually um, arrange it for this episode and your image to be projected on the side of a cathedral, and then it'd be the then it'd be the ultimate, wouldn't it? Ultimately. Well, it's the least I expect the these days <laughs> to project him onto the moon. We better have a chat with budgets, Mark. Hey, and ever. <laughs> <laughs> 
So Ian, how, tell us, <laughs> tell us how things are going. It's been, you know, it's been um, an, a while since we've chatted and I'm really curious as to, to some of the kind of major milestones that, that have happened since we last spoke. There's going to be a long pause here. Well, I think, uh, what major milestones have there been? Uh, well, I keep writing books. That's the thing, really. Uh, I mean, okay, the, the award was fantastic. And uh, then the dust settles and you think, oh, okay. So I guess I should uh, write some more stuff then. And um, and then this, of course, <laughs> this arrived at the same time as the pandemic, which I thought was going to make me more productive. But and I'm sure that I share this with, well, I know I do because I listen to the podcast. Uh, I share this with a lot of other writers that I slowed down. And um, I had a bit of a struggle for a while, but got back into it. And uh, I wrote these, I decided to do these novellas, um, which I called Bedlam Boy, which was a sort of Jekyll and Hyde character. Um, what was I describing it as at the time? Yeah, Jack Reacher meets Jekyll and Hyde, I think it was the idea at the time. And Amazon were toying with a, a few bits and pieces of having short novellas out, and uh, which they since moved onto a, a entirely new platform, and given up on the idea. It seems on on this regular platform. So I thought, oh, I fancy a bit of that. I'll write some short episodic fiction and and just head on down the road to fame and fortune. Uh, unfortunately. I went around the corner of that road and uh, they stopped building it and there was just a sign saying no entry. And I thought, okay, so this hasn't worked out exactly the way I thought it might. And it was back to the drawing board. So I can, very long story short, uh, the three novellas that I wrote, which has two episodes in each, so six episodes, I then combined into one new book uh, with a few minor changes. If you've read the original novellas, it's, it's, the changes are minor and then two new completely full-length novels which uh, i i also had an excellent beta reader on one mr mark's day uh so the three novels were released together about a month ago just over a month ago i think and but this time it's through a a publisher which i'm sure we're going to talk about in a minute but so basically i experimented which i know you approve of here absolutely and uh the experiment uh sort of went <laughs> so um <laughs> So what you do when that happens using the scientific method is you try something else. And that's what I'm doing now uh, because I think the stories work. So it was just the the format and I, I don't mind having another crack at it. And there's been a name change along the way. Uh, Bedlam Boys become Jimmy Blue, which is a more, uh, I think Bedlam had some sort of Victorian strange connotations uh, and Jimmy Blue doesn't. For me, it's uh, it's actually from my one of my favourite bands, Delamitri. So that's where the name Del came from. Delamitri. Oh yeah. my gosh, there's a blast from the past. Now let me ask you, Ian, about Jimmy Blue because Jimmy Blue. As soon as I hear that, I think character series, and I think that shift from the idea of Bedlam Boy to Jimmy Blue kind of kind of pushes everything into that realm of you know, the classic, you know, Jack Reacher series, etc. How much of a difference do you feel it's made to just that, that kind of, I mean, it's a minor tweak, but it's huge, isn't it, in terms of the actual kind of marketing of the books? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's funny, it wasn't my idea initially. I'll hold my hand up to that. It was during a, a, a early meeting with uh, Mark Dawson and James Blatch, who were publishing the book through Fuse Books. And um, he just said, <laughs> he just said, oh, by the way, I don't like the name of the character, really. What do you reckon? And sometimes someone will say something to you, and even though you haven't thought about it before, you just, a little part of your brain goes, ah. And I, <laughs> I did exactly that. I thought, oh, yeah, actually, it's not the most commercial kind of name, is it? I just had it in my head. I like it. It's alliteration. Uh, there's this old song, which is really creepy, that goes with it, which I really love and I've loved for years. Um, but then... I just put the, the my commercial head, which lives in the drawer, comes out on special occasions for about ten minutes, and then <laughs> I, I, I have to look for it. Where, you know, where did I leave it? It's covered in dust. Um, it, for that moment, I thought, "Yeah, he's right." You know, it's got to be a better a better name. So that's where the change came from. And I think exactly as soon as I saw it for the first time on the, when the covers were mocked up, uh, I thought, "Yeah, that's." Yeah, just absolutely is saying all the right, especially with those covers, Stuart Bache covers are brilliant. 
and uh, I thought, yes, this looks like it already looks like a successful series. Whether it's going to be, you know, who knows? That's up to the readers. But it looks like it is, and that's important. What's interesting, as you said earlier, is that that one word, bedlam carries so much weight and expectation to it. It does have that sort of Victorian, uh, almost like an asylum kind of connotation to it. And the covers that you had, which I think are great covers, and, you know, they they look like thrillers, but also there's something about the colour. There's a kind of dark brown sort of colour scheme to them, which, again, I associate with sepia photographs. And you start and it it's, it just takes a couple of little things just to send it just off track, just enough to affect sales. And uh, hindsight is a wonderful thing, of course. But you know, if you look at the the Jimmy Blue novels now, they you know the covers are so striking, so now, so commercial. It's you you've you got to wonder how many listeners are listening to this, thinking, if I just tweak my cover, if I just change one word in the title, I could change everything. Yeah, absolutely, and it's um. The covers, it was, it's a kind of, it's a very common error. And I definitely made it on those covers at the original novellas. Like you say, the, uh, the sort of browns and golds and oranges, uh, very striking, look quite different, but you don't want different. So this is the cover is, of course, it's there to represent the book, but mostly it's there to grab the readers who read these thrillers. And there's no point, point putting something that looks completely different in front of them. Uh, not really. I mean, occasionally something like that works, but that's the exception that proves the rule. Um, so I've learned that lesson. And <laughs> I think I even commented on the on the BXP Facebook page recently on someone else's cover uh, with exactly the same lesson that I've learned, which is uh, really just you want – if you look at the um, supermarkets when they – Lidl or Aldi decide to – I won't say copy because, of course, uh, they wouldn't do such a thing. But be inspired by, say, something like Colin the Caterpillar cake, you know, we, oh, Caterpillar. Um, then they'll come <laughs> out with a box and the character that looks very much like the original, but but a little bit different. And that's what you want. That people go in and go, oh, look, it's a, it's a, that's that's um, Clive the, um, the 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 Caterpillar. Yeah, completely different to the Marks and Spencer's one, but somehow I feel confident and comfortable buying it. Yeah, it's and then they get it home, and they then they taste it and go. Actually, I prefer this to the Marks <laughs> one, and it's and it's half the price. It's half the price, exactly. And here's the thing, though. I think because I mean, it's very interesting because I remember mm. when we originally interviewed you, you talked about how you kind of tried this idea <laughs> of a thriller out. You know, this was your this was your kind of first foray into it um, with picture on the fridge, and I think that you then you you now sound like you're full into it, and because it's such a huge worldwide global i mean it's probably a mark mark probably correct me if i'm wrong here but the thriller genre is probably one of the most competitive but most lucrative genres that you can get in if you have success in um did you are you are you all in now in in thriller are you loving being in this genre well this is the man who's written science fiction uh (laughs) fantasy uh psychological thriller thriller and uh near future uh, William Gibson-ish sci-fi as well. So uh, some people might say I have a problem making up my mind what I want to do. <laughs> but it, I think my writing's represented the sort of scope of my reading as well. And it's just, mm. for me, it's always just come down to, oh, I love this idea of this character and I love this idea of this story. And if that turns out to be sci-fi, then so be it. But yeah, the, th- the thriller thing, I mean, it's with Jimmy Blue, it's... um. I'd say it's a mixture of creative and commercial because co- commercially, of course, having a thriller series with a character that people can really get behind is a is a good idea commercially because if they love one, then they're going to love 20, aren't they? Hopefully. Um, but creatively, it gives you these nice limitations. And this actually is a musical uh, example of that musical metaphor. It's, I use lots of electronic gadgets to make music uh I, I like hardware boxes rather than software and um each hardware box that i that i try has got different limitations but and they definitely are limitations but it forces you to think oh hang on i can't time stretch this uh, this loop on here because this piece of kit can't do that so then you're forced to think okay so what else can i do and that makes you creative so i i like the idea that i'm constrained in certain ways 
but this character is kind of two people. He's a Jekyll and Hyde character. So I've, that gives me a lot of scope. And there's lots we don't know about him, which I deliberately haven't filled in. Um, and we're already, well, I'm, I'm getting near to the end of the first draft of book four now. So we still don't know much about him. There's so much scope to to, to fill that. And I'm still excited to find out more. So I think, and I enjoy writing action. That's that's one, that's been a bit of a revelation. That the more I do it, the more I think, oh, great. Now I've got, you know, all the pieces have come together. Now there's going to be a bit of confrontation. What can I do to spice this up a bit? And that's been great fun. Well, it, it shows in the writing as well, because uh, it's um, there's such a fun read, genuinely, because we we have a sort of quid pro quo thing on the beta reading you show me yours i'll show you mine kind of situation but i i always really really look forward to these books because you know you're going to have i mean they're super violent uh they're relentless they're really inventive uh and I, it, do you get a feeling that you've kind of having done a bit of science fiction having done a bit of that do you feel like you've found a groove or is, is are you going to use this as a kind of a, a, a commercial series that will allow you to do weird stuff on the side, as is the want of a good <laughs> indie author these days? <laughs> well, truth is, I, I, I don't know, but I, I imagine the latter, but not for a little while. Um, I, I feel pretty committed to just adding to this series for a while. And because it has got that little touch of, it's not weirdness exactly, but he is not your normal hero or anti-hero. And I, I like that very much about him. So I still feel completely invested in exploring his character and, and what he might get up to um, and how he might... He's going to have different challenges to most heroes just because of the fact that he's... Uh, well, for, for those of you... For those uh, few million people who haven't yet picked up a copy, basically Tom Lewis is and Jimmy Blue are the same character. Um, and Tom was uh, shot... In the, this isn't a spoiler, it's in the, in the first book and alluded to on the back of it <laughs> and in the blurb. He was shot in the head at the age of 12 uh, when his parents were killed. So the first book is a revenge story 20 years later. Um, and in the intervening 20 years, much of which we don't know about, uh, this other character has developed inside him. So Tom is still kind of a, he's a big guy and he's brain damaged, but uh, Jimmy Blue, it seems like he's not, maybe he's not brain damaged because the that part of his brain is used now has been taken over by this other character. And he's the one who, if there's an ass that needs kicking, then Jimmy blues, the man to kick it basically. <laughs> so there's still lots to explore there. Uh, I think, and yeah, the weird stuff um, and the other projects um, I think will come along, but uh, I had the most success I've, I've had as a writer with the first series I wrote, that was four books. So I'm coming up to that now on Jimmy blue. Uh, and I know there's, it's going to be definitely a handful more, and I hope a lot more because I'm I'm way off getting tired of this character. Brilliant. Well, that's always testament, isn't it, to how great the books are? Is that if the author themselves still loves the character? Because I mean, you know this, you know this, don't you, Ian? When you write a piece of music, it's not about is the track finished. It's when are you sick of it? <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm going to release it now. But the fact that you, you, it feels like you're falling more and more in love with this character, the more you write him, which is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's plenty more to come definitely. And I think we've all read long series somewhere. You read a book, which is like number 12 in a series and you think, wow, this is, there's like a fresh idea here and it's exciting. And this is amazing. And there are others when you read book, 14 in the series and anything they're phoning it in aren't they they've they're they're just following the same formula there's really nothing new here and you can tell that they're a bit bored i think any reader can always tell if the author's bored you can certainly tell if the author's excited i, I hope so anyway i mean they, they might be they might be phoning it in but they might also be cashing it in. Well, <laughs> that's a very cynical attitude to stay. You've been around I mean, here too really. long. <laughs> I was going to say it's, it's when I was going to say it's when another author's name appears on the cover. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, it's an interesting one though because one of the things I was going to ask you, Ian, though, we, Mark and I was kind of we were discussing this offline actually just the other week, and we said, oh, we must ask Ian about this. When you're writing a thriller, and you're from the UK, and they say, write what you know. 
And I'm writing a thriller right now, and I'm well, I'm in North America, but I'm from the UK, so I know more about the UK. And I'm at this point in the book where I'm thinking, actually, should I act base this in the US? Mm. How did you deal with that? Well, when it came up? Uh, I mean. Well, good luck with your thriller, by the way. Thank so, you. <laughs> and uh, so, so commercially, yes, you should. Uh, quite possibly, it's a bigger market. And with my first four books, the World War series, was written in American English, set in America, and various other planets. But um, it's most of my readers, I think, thought I was American for the first, at least for the first book. Second one, they probably th- thought, "Oh, this is interesting. This guy seems to have ended up on a small island off the east coast of England." I wasn't. I didn't see that coming. And then the third one is say, "Hang on a minute." <laughs> <laughs> so the way I've got round it with Jimmy Blue, it's not getting round it. It's always the plan. This was. I thought the re- I wanted the revenge story, which is it's not an origin story. It's it's just his first sort of steps out into the wider world, starting by taking revenge on the people who killed his parents. So I always felt like to me it was going to be a small but uh, almost claustrophobic story where everything happens. In in a smaller environment, although yeah, it's still it's quite a big country. Thank you very much. You know, Great Britain. It's it's not tiny, but most of it happens in London. A few bits happen in other places. It's on the coast of England, and there's a little bit in the Caribbean as well. But mostly, it's focused in London. And uh, I thought that works really well for that. But the plan always was. I thought at the end of that book, you know, what happens next? And I thought I want to get them to America because. As I said before about the kicking of asses, it never sounds right. It should be, of course, kick ass, you know. You can't say kick ass, but I just like the way it sounds. There are so many more asses to be kicked in the United States. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's about six <laughs> times as many asses. So I thought this it's a great idea to get them over there. And there's always there's that tradition of um almost yeah, the anti-heroes who people love to read about in America. Um going from town to town. I mean, Jack Reach is the obvious one, but actually the inspiration for for Jimmy Blue was, in terms of the going from town to town idea, was The Incredible Hulk, the series. Oh, wow. That's where that came from. I just remember that as a kid. You, and you got the two Hulk outs per episode for budgetary reasons. And these various small towns he goes to. And, and he was always looking for a cure. And of course, we never wanted him to find the cure. And so there's that similar tension Jimmy Blue as Tom Lewis, who I think we lo- I certainly love Tom. He's he's a lovely character, and just like childlike. But the longer Jimmy's away, it seems like Tom starts to grow a little bit and maybe gets a bit less hesitant socially. And you think, oh, it's all working out nicely for Tom. But of course, you're also thinking, but I wish he'd Hulk out, you know, go and knock a few heads together as Jimmy. So uh, yeah, the, I remember. Sitting in front of the TV on a Saturday so evening, so it's actually rather than Jekyll and Hyde meets Jack Reacher, it's the Incredible Hulk meets Jack Reacher. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, because it's also uh, there's no physical difference. That's the other thing. There's nothing magical going on here. There's no science fiction aspect to this. It's not. Uh, it's not horror or fantasy. He is the same person in the same body. It's a psychological issue. But there's always this. Certainly, as far as he's concerned, there's some uh, an almost supernatural quality to it. But as a, I don't think that's true. But who knows? I don't know everything about him yet. But no, it's. I think it's all on his head. So it's imagine the Incredible Hulk played by Lou Ferrigno, wasn't it? Uh, if that was him all the time without the makeup on, and then he changed, that's closer <laughs> to Jimmy Blue. He, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't uh, end up with magic pants on, waking up in a barn. It just made me think, Ian, just how busy was the person in the Incredible Hulk set who had to buy the costumes every single week. (laughs) I think the busiest person was the one who had to keep coming back and applying the green makeup. (laughs) That's very true. I love the fact, I love the fact though, that you've done this with one character because it gives you so much purchase, doesn't it? Although I guess one of the challenges of that is that when you've got a duo, you know, like an Arthur Daly and a Dennis, what was Dennis Waterman's character? Because when he said of kicking of asses, I instantly thought of Dennis Waterman <laughs> yeah. from Minder back in the day. But how, how much how much of a challenge is it kind of having conversations between a Jekyll and a Hyde character rather than, well, say, two two kind of duos, as it were? They don't ever meet. There is no conversation. It's a bit like, um, maybe it's like, that's it, Terry McCann. Yeah, 
that's Dennis, my, uh, Dennis Waterman's character, write the theme tune, sing the theme tune. Um, it, it's almost like someone doing shift work in a way when Jimmy takes over from from Tom, which is usually, it's not quite like the Hulk where you have to hit him over the head with a chair to make him change. It's, it's not like that. It's, it can be much more considered. Um, it, it can sort of need him to, to come and he will, or sometimes he just will anyway for, for his own reasons. But it's almost like he's left, uh, like in shift work, you, someone would leave the next person a note saying, oh, you need to check on this. And by the way, watch out for this. It's, it's like that. He's got access to, when Jimmy arrives, he's got access to Tom's memories. And in fact, it's a bit very early on in the first book where Tom is pretty much being taken advantage of by the building site where he's been working by being underpaid by the, the, the boss. And he can't read or write Tom really or very he finds it very hard um so there's not much he can he can do about it he can't argue his case and he 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 walks out and later on when jimmy's in charge he can review that memory and like a photographic memory and look back at that office and he remembers upside down seeing the address of the boss on a on a piece of paper so he can then go there brilliant so it's yeah that's that's kind of how it works the other way around tom gets sort of flashes of memories sometimes that have happened, haven't happened to him. Um, but he finds that disturbing and a bit scary. So he tends to, to shy away from them. Uh, but he's always aware when it's happened, you know, he'll wake up with, um, arms aching or yeah, feeling more tired than when he went to bed and think, oh, okay. That's so fascinating. And one, one of the other things Ian, that I remember you posting on the, 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 BXP team was about how you'd actually kind of use the 200 word challenge during some of those harder moments. Uh, I mean, after the great success you had with the Kindle Storyteller Award, which was amazing, the Kindle Kindle Award, obviously there's a kind of probably an internal pressure that starts to build of an expectation that you think everyone has of like, you know, that difficult second album, even though it wasn't your second album. But in terms of how did you, how did you cope with those difficult days of writing and how did the 200 word challenge kind of get you through those those challenging days well i think and this was probably more to do with the pandemic than the that pressure really like i said it was there was a slowdown definitely but uh and i'd read books on micro habits before like the idea of doing one push-up before going to bed um because then of course you're you think well i'm here i might as well do two and you've already doubled your productivity um so I remember listening to the 200 word challenge and thinking, well, oh, great idea to transfer that to writing and work out that that's, if you did that every day, that would add up to a, to a novel. Um, so on the days when I was finding it very hard, I, I, I just thought, well, okay, I, if I can knock out 200 words, then I, I'm kind of on the right track. Uh, and that I probably did. I don't think I ever did just 200, but it was three to 500 maybe on the slow days and it just got me back into my normal routine um, within a, a few weeks or closer to it anyway. And it just, and it was just that repetitive, you know, sitting down and doing and just thinking, okay, I'm not sitting down intending to write 2000 words as normal. Um, I'm going to keep an eye on the word count when I get to 200, if that's all I do today, that's all right. And that was just a little mental uh, tick almost uh, just a you know, tick box, you know, where I think, okay, all right, and I could—I didn't relax exactly, but it, the pressure felt like it came off a bit. And then, I, if I got more done, which I, all, I pretty much every time I did, then that's a bonus. Brilliant. Now, you say you're into—you in, know—studied a bit about micro habits, something I absolutely am fascinated with as well. But how how did you find your habits have changed over the over the years with writing? Tell us a bit about if do you have a daily writer habit? When do you write? What do you find works really well for you? Um, yeah, I do. And I think it just, you could write without a habit, but it just makes your life a lot easier. It's like you could, uh, you could learn to play the piano without a habit. But if you, if you sit down at the piano, uh, roughly the same time every day and spend 20 minutes there, you're going to do a lot better than if you just every few days think, oh, I'll just, uh, yeah, maybe I'll have a little noodle. Um, so my, Routine tends to be go out and walk the dog or sometimes, well, three times a week, it's go for a run first, then come back and then walk the dog. Um, 
and when I get back from from walking the dog, it's usually around quarter to ten. Put a big pot of coffee on. Get the fingerless gloves on. <laughs> Essential. <laughs> come in, come in here, and um, I, I do usually do all the stuff that you're not supposed to do, which is uh, I just uh, I just glance at Facebook and often YouTube. Again, that's back to the uh, electronic boxes that make music, which I like to watch videos on. Oh, so and so posted a new jam. Okay, I'll just have a quick listen to that. So twenty minutes of buggering about, and then finally I s- settle down. Um, it's Scrivener, and I st- it's a mixture of dictation and and typing now. Uh, oh, wow. Some days I will just type, mm. and other days I'll pick up the the Zoom mic and go in the other room and walk up and down, uh, which is still much quicker. I don't know why I don't do it much more than I do, but I th- if it's I'm ninety two thousand words into this draft now, so it's already. 15,000 words longer than some of my novels and I'm just coming to the final confrontation so it's going to be 110 or more thousand words this draft and at this stage it's a lot of threads have to come together and I have to make notes of things I'm going to need to fix so the dictation doesn't work as well coming to the end I think dictation and I'm I'm going to have to remember this next time (laughs) I start dictation works better at the beginning because you you genuinely can get so much done. Um, if I dictate for an hour, that that can be two two to three thousand words if I'm flowing, which is that's a day's work. <laughs> that's that's great, and then I can sit down and do an immediate, very fast edit just to get rid of obvious mistakes uh, of that, and then that's it. And I think. Oh, that's, yeah, that's great. I can make some notes for tomorrow and, and off we go. But towards the end, I found that I need to be sitting in front of the keyboard because I've got Scrivener up and I'm making lots of notes in the margin. And I'm also going back to previous scenes and I put in capitals, like I think I, I did, I posted this on the Facebook page as well, but I went right back to the first chapter because something hit me about it. And I went back to check and sure enough, I had to put... Um, uh, change, uh, remove all references to stairs because it's a bloody bungalow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. When you dictate, I mean, that, I think a lot of people, it's something people have to really work at to begin with just to kind of get used to doing it. And then there's the technology side of things. But when you record into your mic, are you plugging that into a piece of software um, to actually transcribe it? How, how are you finding that works best? Yeah, I am. But there's... There's another way that I haven't managed to make work yet, which I was very excited about. Uh, so the way I'm doing it at the moment is I'm still using Dragon Dictate, which they've dropped all support for Macs. Uh, they did that within about a year of me buying the, the software, which isn't cheap. Um, and a lot of writers, I think Creve has done this, done this. He's bought a Windows laptop just for for Dragon. and But then you, so you have to do that dictate onto the Windows software, then transfer it to, to the proper computer, sorry, Windows users, and, uh, and do the work there. I just, I love writing on a, on a Mac. Um, so that's the way I'm I'm doing it now, but I'm still doing it on the Mac because it works, the software. So I'll dictate away in the other room. I come back, I plug it in, it transcribes, it makes lots of mistakes, but because I'm intending just to give it the once over anyway i don't mind that so that that's a system that's working but really what i want to get to is the ai um speech to text on on phones it's constantly improving and on iphones in the last ios update yeah. they removed the i think it's a 30 second or 60 second limit and they also made it offline so you don't have to be connected Ooh. So that's a big deal. And it's got loads better. And I saw examples of it on YouTube. So I got very excited and went ahead and updated my phone and the iPad to uh, to the new iOS. And the bloody thing doesn't work. After 30 seconds, it stops working again. It beeps at me and stops. Oh. So I think the only thing I can think of is it must be the fact that I'm running slightly older hardware. Um so when I finally do update my phone in the next year or two, I guess maybe that'll run without having that automatic stop because I've I did a, I spent a lot of time trying to get around it and I can't. But that would be the ideal because then you could have a like a Bluetooth headset, um, just got your phone in your pocket, and you can just dictate away straight in, straight into Scrivener. In fact, using that, 
I'm super excited about, I mean, I just wish we were 30 years ahead because I do think there's some incredible stuff coming. One thing I recently got this, actually just this last week was a, um, a text predictor, a bit like when you use a phone and it kind of guesses what you're going to say. It's, it's in Gmail now, which actually is pretty good. But this thing actually tries to predict sometimes a whole sentence ahead rather than just the next word or two. And I thought, I wonder when the first book will ever be written which is all text predicted and you just go with what it says and you have to keep writing. It'll <laughs> I mean, be like that sodding paperclip that used to pop up in, um, exactly. in Word, won't it? It looks like you're writing a book. Can I help you with that? Uh, I think, yes, you can. I think someone's um, written a book about assassinating that paperclip. So, yeah, uh, I'm sure. <laughs> so, Ian, one thing that was a big kind of change for you as well is is kind of route to publication. Tell us a bit about the journey that you've been on since, since releasing um, you know, Picture on the Fridge and then... What happened next? Uh, yeah, that has been interesting because I've been self-published up to now. Um, I have looked at a couple of other options. And of course, Clockwork Sherlock was an Audible original, so that effectively they became the publishers of that book. Um, but I do like the control creatively of self-publishing. And in fact, a couple of years ago, I went to some friends of ours who are uh, good business people but know nothing about publishing. But I said, look, look at this whole self-publishing world. You know, it's it's off, it's growing, it's amazing, uh, it's it's a fascinating business, and there are, I'm sure there must be lots of people like me who love writing and readers like what we do. You know, we got people asking, you know, when's the next book? They're excited, they're joining the mailing list, they they really want to read my stuff, and I'm confident that I can get better and better uh, and put all the work in because I love doing it at the writing side of things, but. Then all these successful independent writers talk about these two hats they've got. They've got their writing hat in the morning and then after lunch, they put their business pub- publisher hat on and they do all the marketing and the advertising and they uh, split test their Facebook ads and and all this. And I thought, oh, yes, I could probably do that. And uh, the quick answer is no, I probably can't do that actually because it's not that I'm unintelligent, but I my brain just falls asleep almost instantly. It's, it's off doing other things. I, I think, I, yes, I'm concentrating on this. I'm learning this new thing now. And my brain's going, yeah, but what if this bloke found this strange artifact <laughs> in a drawer left to him by his grandfather? And, 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 and before you know it, I, I, oh, God, you know. So I thought, why don't I just put my writing hat back on in the afternoon? Because yeah. it's a yeah. good hat. I like it. So I said to these friends, why don't you, you know, go and learn how to do all the marketing and advertising? Can't be that hard. And of course, then you can do it for lots of authors. You can use me as a guinea pig um, and we'll come to a financial arrangement and split the profits and you can do all that side and I'll just do what I like doing. And they looked into it and then they actually found another business and went into that. But I carried on looking out for someone who might be doing this and it never really seemed to come up. But then uh, I had a couple of chats with Mark Dawson, because he was one of the judges on Kindle Stories, had an award in 2019. So that means he's got to be a, a discerning and capable chap because he had to vote for my book, you know. So at least I hope he did. I better have a word. <laughs> uh, but he and James Blatchy run the, the, the business together. So they do these advertising and marketing courses for authors, which are very popular. I think they're probably the biggest providers of that. So they do know what they're talking about on that front. And then they started Fuse Books with uh, an author who had died, actually, and whose parents didn't know what to do with the books, um, didn't want him to, his books to disappear because he'd paid for their advertising course as well, which is you then got lifetime access to. Um, so they came to Mark and James and, and said, we don't know what to do with these books. And they suggested what well, they talked about. They said, well, why don't we start an imprint and then split the profits 50-50? And the parents said, sounds good to us. And it gave them a chance to completely rebrand the books, new covers, new blurbs, uh, and do all the things that they sell to other people. You know, the Facebook advertising and marketing and kind of proved that it could work on someone else's books. Other, I mean, Mark is a, you know, he sold millions of books. So that perhaps when people listen to a podcast and, and someone says, I'm spending 20 grand a month on advertising, it might not be as relevant if you're writing your first book and you think, well, I've got a five or a day. <laughs> what am I going to do? But with Robert Story was the first author with his books, they could show, okay, we take an existing series that isn't doing so well and we can turn it around. 
And then they signed Ryan Donovan, who's a lovely chap who writes thrillers, uh, and his series was doing okay, but nothing special. And again, they could show that uh, I've seen the bar chart, and it's ridiculous, the, the growth once they got cracking on it. And we had talked about, at the time I was doing Bedlam Boy, we had a little chat about one option would be, you know, maybe I would like to go to Fuse Books with it. Uh, well, there were three options, I think, and that was one of them. And I decided to do it myself, but the... You know, the conversation had started, and so when my grand experiment wasn't the earth-shattering success I hoped it might be, I thought it might be worth having that conversation again. And uh, they very graciously picked up where we'd left off, and we talked about it, and went backwards and forwards for a little while. And uh, I signed up with Fuse, so I, I'm the third author on their books, and this is quite nice for them, I guess, in a way, because they get a new series as well. This is uh, they're not taking an existing series and turning it around. They're taking basically it's a rewrite of the, those novellas into one book and two completely new books. Um, so they released all three at once about a month ago, and things are looking. I mean, I think they're you know, straight into profit, which was good. And reviews, I was. It's odd for me because I can't go on my Amazon dashboard. Uh, you mean look you at the can't figures. do that? You can't do the refresh anymore, Ian. No, I can't. <laughs> what? It's, that's really quite strange, but it's good. I knew it's, and that's the way I want it. Actually, is um, I, I'm just. It's gonna. There's gonna be a period where it's gonna. I'm adjusting, and I'm still adjusting at the moment, where I can. I can focus on what I've always said I want to focus on: the writing, and let someone else do what they're good at, um, the marketing, the advertising, and finding new readers. And they already, I can see there are new readers. Um, I think I'm up to nearly 150 reviews on the first book, and in a month, that's that's decent. Um, I'm really pleased with that, and I can see reviews popping up from people um, who are new, so obviously a new author to me, and and these are really good reviews. So they're finding new readers, and so just then you can see, I think it looks like 150 reviews on the first book, and then it goes to about half of that for the second one. So I was. If it's a series, you think the first one, they, they read it, and if half of them think, oh, I really like this, I'm going to read the next one, that's that's a decent read-through for first book because you're finding who your readers are there. And then the read-through from book two to book three, judging, I don't know the figures, I'm judging by the amount of reviews. Looks like it's, I would say, maybe 90%. Um, in fact, in America, there are more reviews on the third book than the second, which is... <laughs> <laughs> bizarre interesting yeah um but it's extremely high read-through rate from book two to book three so i'm i'm doing my bit they're doing their bit and i'm kind of quietly confident that this could be a, a you know a winning formula and i can just get my head down and write the yeah write the books and not and not be pressing that refresh button because in some ways there is a pro and a con to that aren't isn't there there's there's the the con is that you don't get that little serotonin hit every time you see a new sale but but the pro is you can start working on that RSI in the finger. And actually, if you think about it, if you think about it over an entire lifetime, here's a question for everyone out there in podcast land, over the entire lifetime of someone as an author, could you write an entire extra book if you weren't pressing the refresh button every single day? So I could at least a reader magnet, you know, like a short story. <laughs> could, well, yes. it, go, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, Ian, which is, you know, you try and do that switch of writer in the morning, marketer in the afternoon. And I've tried it. I just don't have the brain for it. I, I, mm. I find it boring um, yeah. and unrewarding. I'd much rather be making up weird shit and writing it down, which is what I love yeah. doing. And I think exactly. I think there is – I think there's going to be a lot of listeners who will relate to that and think, okay mm. – who will do my marketing for me? Uh, who, who will be able to take this on? And um, so, yeah, well, I think, you know, we might see a proliferation of, you know, indie marketing services coming up over the years who will be doing exactly that thing. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a new kind of publishing because I've still got that. They trust me to have creative control completely. So I'm still doing everything right up to the final edit. So that's that's me. Um, and, uh, and, and fantastic beta readers and alpha readers, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then from then on, including the cover, you know, that's, uh, that's then once it's handed over to them, um, I'm not even formatting in vellum anymore, which uh, it's not right. much of a hardship actually, but it's, I just, I'm sending a word document ready to go and that's it. I'm done. 
and there's something quite nice. I haven't quite got used to it, but I mean, I know uh, Fuse are certainly expanding. They're, I think they're opening for submissions, and I think there's going to be a lot more. Like you said, this is a model now. Mm. Um, if you can do the marketing and the advertising really well, and I think I've seen other very successful authors or sometimes um, I think it's a husband and wife team I heard on a podcast a few months ago who do very well and they're doing something very similar. They they thought, well, okay, hang on. We've got this whole little cottage industry going now. Um, the marketing, the advertising, it doesn't take a, a lot to then do that for another author, especially if they're in a genre that they already know. Mm. So why not take someone else on and everyone wins with an arrangement like that really yeah um, you can so you could have maybe there'll be lots and lots and lots of small very small like micro publishers where they've got already got a lot of success in a the genre they're going to pick up a few more authors in that genre and do the same for them it's it's like the benefits of a publisher but without because getting a publisher to turn something it's like turning around an oil tanker you know but you have that yeah the advantage of that indie thing of being able to turn around stuff really really quickly so uh yeah so the, the con is of course from a traditional publishing point of view you don't get the long boozy lunches well, well that's optional surely ian <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting though isn't it because it's almost like we, we we lived in a world of traditional publishing you know 20 30 years ago and then we've had this massive indie revolution where everyone said i'm taking full control and then you know taking you both as examples like the the idea of the marketing is just a drag and i've got a theory folks around this i've got a theory and i want to i want to bounce off you both to see what you think when i look at kids when i look at kids today playing on <laughs> video games the real world just can't compete, right? It's just, it's just. I mean, it's not exciting enough when you when you get this, that massive. And I think the same might be true for authors. When we go into that world and we're living in this incredible fantasy world and we're creating this fantastical story, doing marketing and Facebook ads is absolutely like the opposite extreme of that. And you have to be, you have to have some kind of fascination in marketing and sales to love that. And I think, and I think that's probably why a lot of authors, it, particularly in the author world, there's such a divergence between you're either one or the other, or you're just kind of weird kind of hybrid in the middle, but you're obviously a bit weird and just not quite there. So, I mean, what do you think about that theory? Is it because it's just so much fun writing books? Um, yeah, to, maybe to a certain extent, but there are lots of really good writers who really enjoy marketing. Um, strange people, but they do, and that's great. But that's the perfect combination, really. If it you is. do that, then yeah. you're you know you're laughing, really. But yeah, I, I think it's it's almost selfish. I mean, I'm maybe I'd feel differently if I was in my twenties and I thought, you know what, just come on, learn learn how to do this and get your head down. And I'm just thinking, yeah, I'm 53. Uh, I've got plenty on else going on in my life. I can. Uh, devote that time to more books. It just makes sense in my head that I should be writing more stories because there are plenty of people who will always be far better at marketing and advertising than I ever will be. But no one will write a story the way I do, for better or for worse, because that's me writing it. Um, so if you are if you write stories your way, that's the unique bit. The other bit can be copied and scaled up and people find that exciting to do. I understand in a kind of, in the same way as I understand why my characters in the books do what they do. It's not something I would do, but I get it. You know, they, they find it exciting uh, to see, you know, okay, I've, I've done two Facebook ads and look, I changed this and this one and I've got 12% more traction. Look at the click through rate. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> It's fascinating stuff, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's fascinating. And I think we got that we're still just at the beginning of this revolution. And mm. it's going to take decades for us to eventually work out what the new publishing world is going to look like and how it's going to be. But I do believe, just like you said, Ian, I think, and, and Mark as well, like this idea of um, probably micro publishers who, are, who, who know about readers in a specific genre, but also understand how to market in the online world and i think that is the key because a lot of traditional publishers have been having to learn that as you know as it as and then we're all trying to chase along it because it's changing so rapidly so i think there's a lot of um unique skills that are being developed and it's going to be an exciting time for authors and hopefully we all get to write more books as more of these 
supporting teams, if you like, come along and are able to take the book and, and make it a success out in the world. So yeah, it's fascinating times, isn't it? Be interesting to see if any of the micro publishers get bigger and then get bigger and bigger and become as big as the traditional publishers. And then they become the very thing they decry. Well, exactly, <laughs> right? I mean, when you think, how did a publish, how did a publisher start in the 1800s? Yeah, Probably exactly yeah. like this. So, Two yeah. guys in a room, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, absolutely. But then, so then they split off into, oh, well, hang on, we're getting a bit bigger than Wieldy. I'll tell you what, we'll just do a lot of little imprints and they'll look like completely new companies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the problem with traditional publishing is they keep hoovering up, or vacuuming up, rather, um, other small publishers to become bigger and bigger so they can square off against Amazon. And it's mm. um, there's only a handful of them left now. So, yeah, we're in, we're in for a very interesting few years. Indeed. Yeah. And we haven't even mentioned the words... NFTs for books, which I haven't even mentioned on the oh podcast before, but I've been, <laughs> I've, I, I've been looking into this technology for the last four or five years as technologists. Honestly, though, folks, don't groan no, because it's, there's it's something. There's something called fractional ownership, and that means that your bit, your biggest, and just to kind of preview this for like an episode in 2029, Mark, um, <laughs> there'll be a point down the road where instead of writing a book and trying to get it published or trying to get a deal with someone, you can write a book and have something called fractional ownership in that book, which means you might have a core group of say a hundred people who are your biggest fans and they want a little piece of your, of your book. And you can, with an NFT, you can actually divide a book up, not yet, but in 10 years, five years from now, you'll be able to divide a book up in tiny fragments. It's a bit like owning a little bit of the Mona Lisa if you wanted it. And then if the Mona Lisa became worth something in the future, all the people that supported it up front will benefit. And it's, it, it sounds like Kickstarter, and, and but it's different because it's all on what we call the blockchain and everyone's now falling asleep. But it's all like proven ownership and it is utterly, I'll say this out loud now, it is utterly, utterly mind-blowing from a technologist's perspective. And I, I'm fascinated how this is going to change the book publishing so if world. They, if, they have a, if they have a fractional ownership, could, you know, is it first in, first serve? So the people who get chapter one, can you base their return on investment based on the read-through? So you if you get chapter one, <laughs> yeah. they get more money than people who... Uh, invest yeah. in chapter, chapter thirty-two. Chapter one will probably be more expensive as a share to buy in the book. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. oh yeah. yeah, it's just it's, bonkers. It's exciting from the writer's point of view because when people resell, you'll you get paid again. You then have shareholders. You have loads of shareholders yeah. in your book, and when you launch your book, all the shareholders want to see the value of that book go up. So they're going to promote it like crazy. So suddenly you've got a marketing department of a hundred people who are not doing it just because they love you as an author, because it might actually help pay their mortgage a little bit down the road as well. So all kinds of fascinating things coming our way. But as I said, check in, uh, we'll do this one in about uh, five, 10 years. <laughs> no, no it's too long. I'll be talking months. about it. Yeah, I know. Well, I've <laughs> seen get, it, um, I've seen it happen on. in, I'm, I've seen it in so many different worlds um, already. And it's, I mean, the book publishing world's always going to be a little bit kind of like, you know, it sits back and waits and sees what happens and then goes, oh, we can do this. But it's happening in, I mean, it's happening in music already. We know that. Yeah, and you've probably seen yeah. what's happening in the in the music world, but it's very early days as well. There's a lot of messing around. It's it's kind of early two thousands in the internet where there's all kinds of ridiculous, you know, websites setting up that like getting ten million funding and then going under the next week, mm. and that's kind of. But it's all the big playground right now. And watch this space, folks. We'll talk a bit more about it on the uh, on the podcast, no doubt, in the future. But but Ian, um, I firstly just want to say thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's been an absolute delight to hear always a pleasure absolutely and, and just to kind of check in with where things are at to hear your incredible story it's how it's unfolding really exciting for people who have not yet read one of your books where would what would be the best book for them to start and where would they find it uh well of course everyone it's like yeah you, you all know this is a songwriter the best song you've written is the, the one you just finished um so you don't know for another 10 years if it is but i would say uh, yeah, start with the Jimmy Blue series because it's uh, there are three books out now. Um, you'll find it on on Amazon exclusively at the moment because it's in the uh, in Kindle Unlimited for the page reads as well. Uh, so that's that's where to go for that. And all my all my books are on Amazon. If you like Jimmy Blue, then there's plenty more to dip into. Um, and a few people start to do that, which is 
which is nice. But I say, yeah, of course, because it's the it's the new thing and it's exciting. So Winterfalls is the first book, uh, and I don't have control over the pricing. I know it was much cheaper than the others. To, it was an absolute bargain when it got out there. And I'm not sure if that's changed now, but I'm sure it's still um, much cheaper than a cup of coffee. So that's the one to grab and then pick up the rest or just buy all three at once, if you like. Brilliant stuff. <laughs> and how can people connect with you on social media? Oh, please don't. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I am joking. I do. I do like it. I'm actually pretty good at staying in touch with readers. I, that's one thing I really do like because who could resist when people say, oh, I've read your book, I really like it, or can you help me with this? Or, you know, what, what advice would you give to so-and-so? You think, oh, that's a nice little fillip in the morning when you're, you're there with your cup of coffee. Uh, so I'm in all the usual places, Facebook, Ian W. Sainsbury, Twitter, Ian W. Sainsbury. You won't be surprised by my Instagram handle, so I won't even bother. Uh, <laughs> or you can just email me, iannwsainsbury at gmail.com, and there's a website with a stunningly unique iannwsainsbury.com name uh i think i think that's everywhere isn't it i don't know i'm probably in places i've forgotten i am uh which is the title of my autobiography by the way (laughs) brilliant stuff but ian do stick around because we're going to do a we're going to do a segment now that we're it's a new segment that we have um called spotlight where people who are like a little bit further behind the curve where you are we, we like to promote new upcoming authors that we're really excited about in the academy and this week we have the lovely Wendy Coth from London, good old blighty London, England, uh, who writes in science fiction, fantasy, speculative, and contemporary. Uh, and Wendy is uh, was was really taken into a world of, as she said, the minute Lucy stepped through the wardrobe, I was hooked on fantasy worlds. I'm sure that's for many people a similar thing. Consumed in. 50s and 60s science fiction anthologies, and now uh, is widely read on many sci-fi fantasy eras. And today's spotlight on Wendy is that we're promoting the fact that she is looking for an agent for her new book. And her new book is called Chantelle Yogurt. It's a debut novel, light-hearted, speculative romance in contemporary London. And Mr. Stain, your best London accent, would you like to give us the, uh, the overview of the book? Blake thinks he's found the perfect face for his client's yoghurt commercial and possibly the next love of his life. He has no idea Morgana is a shapeshifter from the planet Ventura on a mission to save her race from extinction. She's here for valuable work, but what's the harm in having a little fun too? While she is distracted by parties and shopping, a dangerous saboteur is wrecking her research team's plans. When her colleague goes missing, she must decide whether to ask Blake for help or risk being stranded on Earth forever. And Wendy says she's currently writing the prequel and with a sequel planned for a future date. I love that. I love that idea of being stranded on Earth. There's <laughs> a lot of people right now that probably feel like that. Yeah, it's a, nice, it's a nice twist. It's a nice twist on the stranger in a strange land, man who fell to Earth kind of thing. You know, yeah, it's, it sounds fantastic. Brilliant. So if you're interested, if you're an agent out there and you love the sound of that, if that's your thing, then get in contact with Wendy. Uh, you can do that by going to Twitter. Her Twitter handle is bychaz, B-Y-C-H-A-Z. And all the best, Wendy, with your amazing novel there. And we hope that you find success with it. And so, Mr. Stay, tell us what else is happening in the world of social media this week. Lots and lots of good news this week. So uh, Rebecca Powell, who's one of our patrons and in the BXP group on Facebook, she said, just found out I've been longlisted in the Caledonia Novel Award. Not allowed to give details, but it's a novel I've been editing and re-editing over the last couple of years, years, uh, revising with each rejection. So although it's only the long list, this is already huge for me. Dwindling self-belief temporarily restored. Well, huge congratulations, Rebecca. And take note, folks editing re-editing for years she's been listening to feedback revising with each rejection you know this is this is we've said this a long time this isn't a sprint it's a marathon you've really got to hang in there and rebecca is reaping those rewards a big congrats to you rebecca Congratulations, Rebecca. That's amazing news. Great, great persistence. Uh, We had a lovely thing from uh, Laura Regan on the Academy. She says, at long, long last, I've typed the end on the first draft of my second novel in the Academy. She's done two novels in the Academy. Uh, Laura says, I'm absolutely elated and happy to put it away for a few weeks after looking at it for so long. I had to give myself a total social media and messaging ban this week to avoid distraction and get it done. 
and it really worked. With every the end I have typed, I've learned an astounding amount about writing, and I can feel my books getting better each time. I'm now going away to a hotel with my family for a night to celebrate and see Santa. It's not all about me, but that deadline really helped push me over the finish line too. Again, huge congrats, Laura. And again, you know, with each the end, as she says, it's uh, each time she's learning something new. You, you, you learn so much by finishing something. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. And I love the fact, and this is what we promote and push in the academy, is you've got to have some form of celebration. And you've got to declare what that celebration is, not just the dream of what you want to achieve, but what are you going to do when you finish? And I love the fact that all her family got to enjoy and celebrate with her, especially this time of year. Absolutely brilliant. So congratulations, Laura. Uh, more good news from Fadzi Kasambira, who is in the Bestsell Experiment group on Facebook. He just put up a screenshot that says, The End. Finally done. Now to edit the bloody thing. <laughs> Fadzi, I know, has uh, he's got one uh, novel on submission uh, with his agent, which uh, I've read and is breathtakingly good. I mean, you want to talk about Harlan Coburn-style thrillers. It's just amazing. And I can't wait to read this one. So huge congrats to you, Fadzi. Brilliant work. Excellent stuff. Watch this space with that name as well. You heard it here first, eh? And and talking about, uh, you know, the long run, uh, I saw a lovely post from Mike Shackle, uh, who, again, member of the BXP group on Facebook. He said, I had this pop up on my Facebook memories today. Uh, my wife celebrating me finishing my first book. A timely reminder that this is a marathon and not a sprint. I forgot he put that as weird. <laughs> he must have planted that in my brain. But yeah, this is this is from 2011. So that's 10 years ago, Mike finished his first book. And if you recall, he was on the verge of giving up when he heard Joe Abercrombie on our uh, podcast five years ago. Five years on, he's just coming to the end of a three-book deal with Gollets. It's an incredible story. So, Mike, we're going to be getting you back on the podcast next year to to talk about that because that's just astonishing stuff. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And thank you so much to everyone who posts up there exciting news and their wins as we always say it is our fuel to this podcast we love to hear your successes and breakthroughs um to just to balance out you know we know it's hard as authors we can all be real about this it's uh what was it that that mug i saw on social media writing is like riding a bike but the bike's on fire <laughs> it's like that is what we all go through so many in those those quiet moments so these little those the huge wins and those might seem all small wins to you they're always huge to us so please keep them coming folks absolutely brilliant i've got a few plugs as well um before we finish this off uh first of all people are starting to get their spotify sort of roundups of the year so we've had a few people ben andrews who is at ben and underscore ruse on twitter my top podcast this year and we're there in his top podcast uh, along with alan carr uh who's sort of sitting on top of us and he doesn't appear to have any clothes on uh but yes yeah, so let us know if we, we crop up missing your, something then <laughs> your best podcast <laughs> maybe we need year. a new podcast cover for 2022 <laughs> and also, on behalf of all your listeners can i just say please <laughs> no. don't do that <laughs> all right folks if you would like to support us on patreon we will not take our clothes off in 2022 <laughs> go to page com forward slash support or maybe not naked should be the actual url we'll do that We've also had a, a lovely note from Robin Sarti, who uh, is, is, has been working on Indie Author Magazine, uh, which is essential reading for indie authors out there. And the December issue is out, and it features a whole bunch of familiar names. Um, Jack Harmon, Robin Sarti, Paul Austin Arduin, Cueve McDonnell, Mark DeVoe, and some hack called Ian W. Sainsbury. It's like a bestseller experiment takeover of Indie Author magazine. So definitely get a copy of uh, of uh, Volume 1, Issue 8, December 2021. Uh, congratulations, guys. Yeah, they, they couldn't afford me, obviously. So Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> You're too busy making movies, Mark. Yeah. And, uh, and also, just to quickly plug, we have um, the unofficial bestseller experiment reading group uh which is on facebook and they're interviewing me talking about hacks they're interviewing me on sunday 19th of december which at 7 p.m gmt which is live so do check out the unofficial bestseller experiment uh facebook group and they'll be asking me about all sorts of stuff ian you've done you've done one of these before haven't you i think i did Mm. yes yeah yeah it is yeah it's really good fun i won't be able to listen to your one i'm afraid i'll be driving across the country to spend christmas on the the other side of uh, heading enough. west for Christmas, but uh, 
I'm sure I can catch up with it later, can't I? It'll Absolutely. Still be there. Yeah, it's, all, it's all recorded on Facebook for all to see. So everything is recorded forever, folks. You there's yeah. never a yeah. And I would also like to remind people as you're coming, as you get time over Christmas, as we this episode is going out uh, well, mid December, so there's only probably like a week and a half to Christmas. We have a fun, fun Christmas episode coming up. I say that we haven't recorded it yet. It might be absolutely awful, but I'm I'm hoping it's <laughs> going to be fun. And uh, we're going to be going into nostalgia. We're going to be talking about books we loved as kids and the best Christmas presents we've got. And uh, if you'd like to kind of join in, we're looking for suggestions of what inspired you as a child at Christmas. And also remember, folks, that if you want to start 2022 off with a bang, you have two things you can do. Number one, join the 200 word challenge. Get January the 1st, start that as your uh, first day of your new year and see how many days you can write consecutively, 200 words. You will write that novel. You will write that novel if you do that. And if you want to join that, get over and register now. It's free, 200wordchallenge.com. And of course, if you want to take things to the completely next level, join Mark and I as your coaches for 2022 in the Bestseller Academy. You can submit your application now. The clock is ticking though, folks. So do not delay. Go and do it before the end of the new year so that we can join with you in January and you can start this incredible journey. Uh, if you've missed the webinar that we did on the Bestseller Academy and how it can help your goals in 2022, pop along to Academy bestsellerexperiment.com and you can watch it now before it gets taken down so and mr stay i'm looking forward to our christmas episode next week we're going to be donning on those amazing uh christmas sweaters once Again, more no doubt they've been washed they have been washed good, good. <laughs> and ian you're still with us so great to have you thank you so much for all of your fun laughter stories and and your inspiration because you've been such a massive inspiration mm. to everyone on a regular daily basis you're so active in the in the bxp team facebook group and we so appreciate your dulcet uh tones and your brilliant satirical humor I, I honestly whenever you post something in that group it always makes me chuckle because you always somehow <laughs> seem to make it very funny so thank you again for all the inspiration and and best of luck with all the books it will be coming out of your incredible imagination over the next few years well thank you very much and thanks for having me again it's always a blast brilliant stuff so good luck folks have a great writing week get on it start writing make it happen and make 2022 your best year yet so it's a goodbye from mark one and goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye! Goodbye!